0: I want to invite you to find your place as we conclude our final message today on Malachi's letter that he wrote in the Old Testament. Uh, if you go to Malachi chapter 4 and verses 1 through 6, I will share with you what I've titled our message to be Faithful Conclusions as we come to the conclusion of Malachi. What is it that we need to take away from all that we've studied and all that I've shared with you? And as we're preparing, and you'll notice the music selection today. We're, we're celebrating that season of Christmas, and here's a, here's a picture of something that I've been getting asked since Thanksgiving afternoon, right? Many of you have probably approached the, the cashier, the register, if you went and enjoyed Black Friday or whatever. Uh, I did not, but if you did, you're probably already getting bombarded by the question, are you ready for Christmas? Are you ready for Christmas over and over? And here's one thing I know, that December 25th is going to come whether you're ready for it or not. Uh, just like Thanksgiving, whether you were ready for it or not, it is in the past. We're as far away from Thanksgiving as we'll probably ever get until next year, right? Uh, but are you ready for Christmas? Well, I, I would share with you in Malachi's teaching in verses four, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, we're going to understand how do we get ourselves ready, not for Christmas, but for what God has in store for His creation. So I want to invite you to turn to Malachi chapter 4 and find your place in verse 1, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. Uh, with you. uh, Read along in your Bible as I read it out loud here from the pulpit. So let's turn our attention to the Word of God. Picking up in chapter 4, verse 1, "...for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings." You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Let's pray together. So Father, we thank you for your word. And as we come now to this time of proclamation of your truth, Father, we help you. We ask you to help us to discern and understand and apply to our heart what this lesson is that Malachi is giving us, what conclusions are drawn to help us apply to our daily life. And Father, I pray now for the moving of the Holy Spirit upon this place. Every person watching, every ear listening, and every child, man, woman, and the sound of this voice, Father, that the Holy Spirit will work in our lives in a mighty way. We will leave this place knowing for surely today we were in the presence of the Lord. Father, I ask this blessing upon this congregation. Father, may your truth proclaim all that we need to know. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, I want to share with you today, as we look at this conclusion uh, of Malachi's message, what, what can we get from all of this? And I think there are five specific conclusions that we can leave from this place today. I want to share with you this final paragraph of admonition also leads us back to the book's beginning in verses 1 and 2. The issue of the warning of faith, the waning of faith, the disrespect, and even contempt towards God, empty religious ritual, self-seeking betrayal of marriage vows, and the rights and needs of others, greed, injustice, and materialism are all addressed in the book of Malachi that we've been working through. But Malachi is going to leave us with some conclusions of what we need to take away from this message today. So the first one I want to share with you is number one, just like Christmas, the day is coming according to scripture and whether we're ready for it or not, it will come. So let's observe what, what is Malachi leaving us with? Look in verse one with me again. He says, for behold, getting our attention that there's something that's going to take place. And he says, the day is coming burning like an oven when all arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, as the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Now, what do we observe here? I want to share with you three things very quickly. Number one, we see that an appointed time has been given to us. Isaiah would talk about this time and this judgment and what would happen to the nation of Israel that Malachi is echoing here in Isaiah chapter 47, and verse 14. He says, Behold, they are like stubble, You ever cut a field? You ever cut grass? You ever see someone doing a controlled burn? And you ever notice how quickly and easy the forest ignites when it's dry and just ready to be burned? Matter of fact, in our fire service, in the great Smoky Bear campaign, only you can prevent forest fires. You remember that? And they give the illustration of flicking a cigarette butt out the window, and it lands on the dry grass, and immediately that stubble, if you will, that's left on the ground, that thing that's there, immediately ignites and catches flame. That's what Malachi is saying is going to happen here. He describes the burning oven not only at an appointed time, but also a prepared fire that's going to take place here. Now, in his day, the people would have understood that ovens were used to bake things like bread and meals and to prepare for something to be enjoyed. But this will not be a fire in which a preparation for an enjoyment will take place. It will be a fire that is even hotter then the fire that Shadrach, and Abednego, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were placed into, where the fire even consumed the guards that were taking up. It was so hot, hotter than they had ever expected it to be. But yet those who had their faith in Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, those three came out of that fire unquenched. Malachi says that it will be burning like an oven, where all arrogant and all evildoers will indeed be that stubble. There will be no hope for them whatsoever. In the New Testament, in Matthew's Gospel, we see that not only the, the Gospel writers but Jesus Himself referred to this day. In Matthew chapter three, verses seven through twelve, when Jesus is being condemned and chastised by the Pharisees, Jesus sees what's going on there, and He tells them to keep fruit and within repentance. And John, excuse me, in Matthew chapter three, verses seven through twelve, John the Baptist is seeing the Pharisees that are coming, and he says the following. And I'll read for you this scripture. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And John the Baptist gives this warning. He says, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourself, We have Father Abraham as our fathers. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And John would go on to explain what Malachi was sharing here in verse 10. And he says, even now an axe is laid to the root of the trees. And even every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You ever come across a sweet gum tree in your yard? You got one of them annoying things that drops those little spiky balls and you walk around outside in the spring when the weather's thawed and you step on one and it reminds you that you needed to cut that tree down? And then your wife reminds you, you did cut it down five years ago, but it grew back. You see, we understand that even with a sweet gum, unless we get to the root of the issue, unless we chop the very bottom of the tree and dig the roots out of the ground, likelihood is that sweet gum tree is going to keep on growing. You may cut off a twig or a branch or think you got it all, but next season it's going to be showing itself again. Malachi is saying here, that's not going to be the case when this day comes where God is going to take the ax even to the roots. No branch will survive. What John the Baptist was telling the Pharisees here, that even now the axe is being laid to the root of the tree. It doesn't matter that you are the righteous people of God, that you were the chosen nation of Israel. It doesn't matter that you've grown up in the church your entire life. It doesn't matter that you've got all the Sunday school pens. It doesn't matter that you're the Awana champion. If you don't have Christ in your heart, the root will get chopped off and it will not remain. That's what Malachi is sharing John would go on in verse 12 of Matthew chapter 3, and he says that his winnowing fork, him being Jesus, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor. Now, if you don't know what the threshing floor is, if you've ever had the privilege of seeing how they used to thresh wheat in the old days, they'd cut the wheat down with a sickle, and they'd lay it in a big pile, and they would take like a pitchfork, and they would throw it in the air over and over again, and as the wind was coming, and they would do this primarily on a windy day, because the wind would catch the chaff. The useless part of the the stock. And it would blow it away, and the heavy grain would fall back onto the tarp or onto the ground where they were winnowing it. But all that chaff would end up being piled up in in an area. And then it made real good fire starting material because it would burn real easy. John says the following He says, His winnowing fork, Him being Jesus, is in His hand, and He will clear His threshing floor. And he will gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with an unquenchable fire. Now, in case you thought Jesus only talked about things in parables or metaphors or allegory or things that weren't literal, here's what Jesus says about this issue of this fire that Malachi is talking about, this burning like an oven fire. In Mark 9, 47 and 48, Jesus addressing the issue of sin in our life says the following. He says, and if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than two eyes to be thrown into hell. And here's how he describes this fire, this blazing oven, this prepared fire. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus is pretty clear on this day that is coming. What will happen on this day? But Isaiah shares with us another thing. Notice there's a permanent removal. I've already mentioned the axe and the stump. But in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, the, the root and the branch often referred to that family relationship of father and son. Did you know that there's no grandchildren in heaven? Think about that for a minute. God has no grandchildren. He only has children. You can't inherit your way into heaven because of what your grandma or grandpa did or what your father or what your mother did. If you're a child here today, you can't inherit the kingdom of heaven because how good your parents are, or because they go to church. We only get to inherit the kingdom of heaven when we've been adopted into God's kingdom as children of God. And the only way we do that is through the acceptance of what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary. The death, the burial, the resurrection. The understanding that our sin requires recompense. That at the appointed time, at the prepared fire, there will be permanent removal unless our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then we can avoid that place that Jesus described where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Isaiah 30, 27 talks about the the graciousness of God, and he says the following, Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with His anger and His thick rising smoke. His lips are full of fury, and His tongue is like a devouring fire. But aren't we... Aren't we glad for Jesus that we escape all of those things? So let me leave you with the first question, and you may see this a few times. Here's the question. Are you ready? You ready for Christmas? Are you ready for that day when it comes? Jesus gives us a way to be ready. But let's turn our attention to understanding the rejoicing and the restoration that is coming on that day. Point number two, look in Malachi, verse two. There's some R&R. We love that term, don't we? Rested relaxation. But I think biblically it terms the rejoicing and restoration that is coming for each and every one who fears the Lord. Notice in verse two. For for you who fear my name, the Son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. There's a sense of rejoicing and overwhelming joy that's taking place here. Now, what is the subject of rejoicing? We can go back to Malachi chapter three and look at our first few verses there. Matter of fact, the entire book. And we understand that those who are rejoicing, as the writer gives us to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what we understand it to be is those who are fearing the Lord. In chapter 3 of Malachi, we notice that it was those who feared the Lord that gathered together amongst themselves. It didn't say that all of Israel gathered to discuss these things. It said those who feared the Lord amongst Israel gathered to discuss these things what they should do and it's that gathering and their outpouring of their love and devotion for the law and its teachings and their commitment to God and the Bible tells us in the latter part of chapter 3 of Malachi that their books their names were written in the book of remembrance here some principles for R&R that we see going on number one the subject of rejoicing is those who fear the Lord but the season of rejoicing notice it comes But notice what's happening here, and you may not pick up on it, but notice he says, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Now your Bible, on point number two, the reason for rejoicing, your Bible may have a capital S there for sun. Some traditions and translations give us that abbreviation, but here in the Hebrew understanding, the sun often meant healing. The sun often meant with its rays, it would cure diseases, it would cure sicknesses. Matter of fact, if you go to Alaska where they don't have much sun in the wintertime, you might get the rickets, right? A vitamin D deficiency. You know that if you're out in the sun, your body can stay healthy. If you ever have a newborn child and they have jaundice, one of the things that the doctor is going to do is put them in front of ultraviolet lights and rays so their skin can no longer be yellow and looking like a little alien, Right? We know that the Son has healing in its power, and this Son here is not talking about the Son Jesus. Often that correlation is easily made. The psalmist would say the following in Psalm eighty-four, eleven: For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor, and no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Isn't that good? Folks, we can get some rest and recuperation there, can't we? Some rejoicing and some restoration in the Lord. The sun is also associated with healing in Isaiah 30, 26, Isaiah 58, 8. But thirdly, let me share with you, there's a time for rejoicing. Not only is the subject of rejoicing the people that fear the Lord, the reason for rejoicing is the healing that God will bestow upon those who are broken, sick, lame, deaf, dumb, mute, wayward, sinful. But there's a time for rejoicing Now, notice in the scripture here, this second sentence in verse 2. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Now, every time my wife and my kids and I, we see one of them little calves. People like to post stuff on Facebook. Why they have their farm animals in their homes, I have no idea. But in the kitchen, there's that little cow or that baby little pig or that baby goat. And the next three hours of my life is spent defending why we don't need a baby cow in our house, right? that's just what happens. But we all have the image of what Malachi is talking about. This this calf that gets out, let out of the barn and he's so happy to be out in green pastures and he's frolicking around and he's running and he's just kicking up his heels and isn't it just so fun to watch? But did you know what that cow was really meant for and the reason it was pent up in that barn? The reason it was getting all that feed all winter long and getting fattened up because that calf was meant for the slaughter? That calf was meant to be killed. That calf was meant to be, like the prodigal son found out, dinner at the great feast that was fixing to take place. And that fatted calf, instead of being slaughtered here, Malachi is letting us know that that time for rejoicing, that we can look upon God and the favor that God has given us, is that we will no longer be waiting for slaughter, but waiting and being able to rejoice in the fact that God has spared us from the very thing that we deserved. There's a time for rejoicing where we too will be overwhelmed like that calf and we'll come out of bondage, frolicking in our newfound freedom in Christ Jesus. What a beautiful thing that we can understand. Well, how do we do all that? This time for rejoicing, Isaiah 53, 5 reminds us, He was pierced for our transgressions and He was crushed for our iniquities and upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. You see, rejoicing and restoration has come in the man, Christ Jesus. And we know it's come, and we know that he's demonstrated just how much did he love us. Yet while I was a sinner, Romans 5, 8 reminds me, Christ died for me. What broke the chain that held the barn door closed that kept the calf ready for slaughter? Sin binds the chains of our life. But when we put our trust and faith in Christ Jesus, he unlocks the bondage, and he lets us out. And we experience life in a whole new way. I have come so that you may have life, Scripture says in John 10, 10, and have it in abundance. Abundance. Rejoicing and restoration the way God has intended it for you and I to be. So here's the second question. You might recognize it. Are you ready? Are you ready for the rejoicing and the restoration? Some of us say, yes, Lord Jesus, come we're ready. I know several of our saints that are just looking forward to the anticipation of their home going. Can't wait for that day. And some of us saying, Lord, I'm ready. I want to go, but just not yet. Right. I don't mind dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Thirdly, let me share with you the victory that's coming, the victory that is coming. Now, let me give you a, a mental picture of what victory you ever, you ever watched the gladiator, the gladiator shows? You ever watch one of them, and, or even football for that matter, they, flow, they throw flags on you now if you do this. Uh, but in the old days, in the gladiator movies, you ever seen the gladiator that triumphs over his opponent, and all of a sudden he stands on him with his foot on his chest, and his sword's sword down there, and his spear in his hand, and he's got his foot on his enemy. And the whole crowd's going wild because they know that guy won the battle. Let me share with you how Malachi describes The day that is coming, the victory that is coming for those that are in Christ, that are faithful, that fear the Lord. Look in verse 3. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord. God's law is just. God's law is righteous. God's law brings judgment. God's law brings the wrath of God. And notice how he describes those who are in Christ, those who are found faithful with God, the day is described as the following, when righteous overcomes evil. Notice how the text tells us in verse 3, you shall tread down the wicked. There won't even be any standing. It'll be like walking in a freshly cut mowed field that was full of thorn bushes and briars and all those things you don't want to walk through. Then all of a sudden, one day, it is the plushest grass you've ever seen in your life. That's what Malachi is describing here. You're going to walk right over it. They're going to be under your feet. You're going to have your foot on the enemy, much like in Genesis, the great curse, if you will, where God reminds us that you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. That Satan will indeed be conquered. Righteousness will overcome evil. The wicked will be no more. For they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. Now, you've got to understand the cultural context of what was talking when we're talking about feet, and it's still very much so this way in the Middle East. If you are sitting in a meeting with someone and you're exposing the soles of your feet to them, it's considered an insult, uh, uh, something that's not well taken. When you walk into their home, even if it is a mud floor, you take your shoes off at the door and you come in. If you go into a house in Japan, many of them live that way, and there's a place outside their doorway just for shoes so that you can come in and walk cleanly. The cultural context here, would I understood, there's nothing dirtier than what's underneath your feet, but look how Malachi describes their ashes. Now, last time I checked, ashes aren't hard to deal with. You just scoop them up and throw them out. They don't fight back. They don't hurt you. They don't even take all the moisture out of your hands. You just throw them away, and you can walk right over them. No problem. Ashes under the soles of your feet. You know, that's how God is describing the enemies of our day, those who are in Christ Jesus, the challenges of wickedness and unrighteousness and sin and corruption that's in our life today, that one day they'll be like us walking on top, the powder of ashes, not even causing us to stumble. What a great day that is. When the righteous overcome evil, when the wicked will be no more, when the righteous will reign On that day when I act, says the Lord in verse 3, notice lastly, God will act. You see, God's not calling us to fight his war for him. He's calling us to join him in his efforts of what he's already doing in the world. You know how he's called us to do that? Peter reminds us to always be prepared to give the reason for the hope that's within you. But season it with salt and grace, knowing how you should respond each in its own time. You see, too often I think we want to fight God's battle for God instead of taking our part on the team and giving and playing the the role that He's assigned us well. You ever been a part of a sports team and you had that person on the team that no matter where they got put, they always wanted to be in a different role, in a different position? Somebody always wanted to be the quarterback that couldn't even throw the football. You ever notice that? Or the guy that wants to be the pitcher on the pitching mound, but he can't throw a strike to save his life? The guy that wants to be the cleanup hitter, but he can't hit a softball pitch, right? And I've seen some of them ladies throw softball, y'all. That ain't that easy. It's tough. Someone always wants to be in a position other than they're in, right? I've met deacons that wanted to be the preacher, but didn't get called. Boy, doesn't that cause some frustration in the church? I mean, those things happen all the time. That manager who didn't get promoted, who thought he was better than the co so at every lunch meeting, they always talk down about how the management's leading the company because they didn't get the call. It's difficult, isn't it? But you notice God has given us a role to play and a place to act that's within our capability. I would imagine what the church could be like if every single one of us fielded the position God has placed us in to our fullest extent. Imagine what the church could be if we all did that together. If I pastored and focused on pastoring the very best I could do that and didn't worry about all the other side things that I get distracted by. If deacons deaconed, if Sunday school teachers taught, if nursery workers nursery worked. Right? Imagine all the different things we could do in ministry, because God will act. It's not for us to condemn the world for them acting out their nature. Our role is to share the gospel and the love of Christ. Because as wretched as we may think people outside the will of God, without a relationship with God, are. I think it's a sobering reminder to remember that we were once that way also. Again, God doesn't have grandchildren. You didn't inherit your faith. Someone shared the proclamation of the good news with you. And because of that, you've been adopted. When you accepted Christ, you repented of your sins, you were baptized by the waters of immersion, you come out to walk with Christ in an entirely new way, symbolizing His resurrection, his death, burial, and resurrection. Somebody shared Jesus with me. Just like our job is to share Jesus with those who are acting out their nature because they don't know the gospel of Jesus Christ. God will act on that day. It is not for us to act. Isaiah thirty eighteen 18 gives us this great reminder. He says, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore He exalts Himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice, and blessed are all those who wait for Him. God's already extended His grace and His mercy to you and I. But did you know He's waiting to extend it to even more? For whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's God's will. So a third question, and again, you might recognize it. Are you ready? Do you know that you know you have a relationship with Christ? Do you know that one day you will stand with your foot on the chest of sin and corruption and unrighteousness and rebellion because you've been able to be an overcomer because of what Christ has done in your life? Number four, let me share with you a need for remembering. And that need is now. Look in verse four with me. Remember the law of my servants, Moses the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Now, just a reminder for you, if you're not familiar with the geography, Horeb is also referred to as Mount Sinai. And that was the place that God left heaven's throne and came down to meet with man and give man the instructions. You can find that in Exodus and read all about those instructions, the Ten Commandments, and all the teachings that God gave to Moses about establishing the tabernacle and how to worship and all of those things. But remember the law of my servants, Malachi says. The statutes and rules. Now, on a side note, when we look at statutes and rules, is there a difference there? I would argue no. They both refer to the same thing the teachings of God. It's very difficult to determine what is a statute and what is a rule or what is a law and what is the commandment. God has given them for us to understand. So, let me give you three reminders here that God has given to his people over the time, and I believe we can apply them in our context as well. Number one, there's a reminder for reverence. Notice that Malachi introduces the law of my servant Moses because the nation of Israel would have understood the encounter that Moses had with God on Horeb, on Mount Sinai. And he would have remembered that Moses was given specific instructions, so much so that Joshua and Nehemiah write about their reverence for the reminder of the law and the statutes. Here's the way Joshua records this for us in Joshua 23, 6. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left. Now, before you get off on the New Testament covenant all right, and start already just blocking me out here for a minute, did you know that Jesus reminds us that he says, I did not come to abolish the law, but so that the law may be fulfilled? Not one dot, not one tittle will be taken away from this, from the law. While we are under grace, by no means can we earn our salvation. Let me be very clear about that. That does not give us license to be able to discard the rest of what God has taught. There's still application in our life to apply it to our life. Just the same way the nation of Israel needed to revere what Moses was taught, we too need to revere the precedents set in the Old Testament and the New in our relationship as God's people. Moses' day, they had no excuse that they didn't know. They were taught from the hand of God Himself as He inscribed the Ten Commandments on the stone tablets. And today I would argue we have no excuse either as we sit here and we have all 66 books of God's Scripture revealed over time for you and I to know what God wants for our life. What a beautiful thing if we keep our nose stuck between the book. Here's how Nehemiah would explain that in Nehemiah 8 and 1. He says, and all the people gathered together one man into the square before the water gate. Now, context what was going on in Nehemiah's day? The walls of Jerusalem were broken down. The nation of Israel was just in ruins. It was just a people that no one was proud of to be the nation of Israel because of their standings, because of their social posture, because of all that they had, their lack of prosperity, or any of that stuff. Matter of fact, Nehemiah was grieved when he heard the report that came back to him from where he was at in modern-day Iran. And he wept and prayed and fasted and developed a plan to go back and make Israel the nation that it once was by rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. So as he goes before the king and he's given letters and decrees to give him safe travel and supplies and material, he enters into this campaign of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, y'all. Now that's no small feat. Matter of fact, Samballot and a few other people kind of taunted him They said, man, you can't even build a matchstick, let alone the walls of Jerusalem. If a fox climbs up on it, it's going to knock it down. That's how bad of a builder you are. What can you do? They begin to diminish the work that's going on. But Nehemiah perseveres in prayer and appointing each one to their duty. And here's what the following says about the people as they are gathered together. As they begin to hear the words of God again and the book of the law is brought out. Nehemiah 8.1. And the people gathered as one man. Look at the unity that's there. Hundreds, if not thousands, gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. And the rest of the chapter goes on to describe their worship. It says that they stood there. They weren't sitting down on nice pews. But they stood there, and as the word of God was proclaimed, as Ezra read the word, the people stood, and they sang, and they proclaimed. As a matter of fact, it goes even more, y'all. Did you know there were small groups in Nehemiah's day? It says that they were gathered in groups, and others who understood the word taught the others in small groups that didn't understand to make sure everyone that was there gathered at the water gate could understand the teachings of the Lord. You see, even Nehemiah transcended generations, transcended generations, backgrounds, transcended education, transcended reading levels, all of those things. He didn't even care that you didn't have a King James 1911 then. There was those in the crowd that could explain it to you so you could understand the Word of God, and they rejoiced over it. There's a reminder for reverence for the Word of God and the things that still provide value in our life. But secondly, there's a reminder of God's righteousness In Deuteronomy 4.45, we see that these testimonies, the statutes and rules which Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt, they had value for the life of the nation of Israel. And I would argue, brothers and sisters, that the Old Testament gives us such a depth and understanding of the New Testament that without that we couldn't fully understand the grace of Jesus Christ. Without understanding the law and the righteousness that was required for Israel, God's chosen people... We couldn't possibly begin to understand the length and the depth and the suffering and the agony and the pain of what God went through in His Son, Jesus Christ, to restore us, one who was not normally the nation of Israel, who became part of the nation of Israel through His Son, Jesus. One abnormally born, grafted in to the vine, if you will. God's righteousness, His statutes and ordinances, are beneficial for us to understand and to appreciate the new covenant that we have in Christ Jesus. But thirdly, here's the the point. If you don't pay attention to anything else in this sermon, tune in here for a moment. Number three, there was a reminder that this was God's initiative. It was God's initiative. You see, God chose to meet Moses on Mount Horeb, on Mount Sinai. God left heaven's throne to come down and meet and give Moses instructions for all of Israel. God didn't have to do that, but he did it to help his people understand his love for them and his holiness and his righteousness and what God would require from such a chosen people. You know, it's not much different for us in the New Testament under the grace of Jesus Christ. Not much different. It was still God's initiative to send his son from heaven's throne to come and leave all of that to live a human life, fully God, fully man. To dwell amongst us, the word became flesh so that we could know God's righteousness. And he who was no sin, he who had no sin became sin so we might be his righteousness. You see, God's initiative of what He did to restore us. It goes a little further, too. Let me read for you in John chapter six forty four. This is part of this great mystery of God's election and God's predestination and God's calling men unto Himself and then the free will element that we respond to God. Let me share with you God's initiative. Jesus says the following. He says, no, no one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, isn't that interesting? that even on our own will, we can't choose God. God has to call us and extend that to us. Jesus goes on a little clearer later on in John chapter 12, verse 32, and he says this statement about being high and lifted up. He says, And when I am high and lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. So let's see. Jesus gives us an understanding that no one can come to the Father except those who draw him. And then I will raise him up on the last day, he tells us in John six forty four. And then Jesus gives the, the next clause, and I will, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now is there a contradiction? Absolutely not. You see what Jesus was talking about in John six forty four hadn't occurred yet. What he's prophesying in John twelve thirty-two has not occurred yet, but it's going to take place. And in John fifteen, sixteen, look at the following. He says, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So whatever you ask in my Father's name, he may give it to you. These things I've commanded you so that you will love one another. Just like God met Moses on Mount Sinai, Jesus wants to meet you right where you are. Salvation is God's initiative, but he makes us and gives us the opportunity to respond. And I'd argue since Jesus has already been high and lifted up, In John 32, he says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. For all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Folks, if you're hearing God's word, and there's a reason you're hearing God's word, whether it's sitting at home on your couch, dining room in your bed, in your car, listening while you're traveling on a podcast, when you're hearing God's word, know it's no coincidence that you're hearing the scriptures and when you come under conviction, that drawing, that edging, that gripping your pew, you know something's going on in your life that's speaking clearly to your soul. Folks, that's the conviction of the Holy Spirit, not just your conscience. Because remember, you still have your conscience when you're living in your sin, and it really doesn't bother you that bad. Isn't it amazing how the longer we do a particular sin, it really, it really doesn't burden us? You see, it can harden our hearts to the where it no longer affects me. You ever get that way with certain people when they call you names that it just doesn't bother you no more because you're so used to it from that person? That behavior, that attitude, that whatever it is, that now you're like, whatever, right? Same thing happens to us with sin. We can get to that attitude where it doesn't bother us no more, but we do that. Folks, when there's a conviction from the Holy Spirit, when the proclamation of His Word is preached and spoken, when you hear it, that is the supernatural power of God at work in your life. Don't dismiss it as a random thought of guilty conscience. Folks, that is the supernatural power of God. And folks, I would argue everything we have here is supernatural. There is nothing natural about what you and I read we call the Bible. It is all the supernatural power of God to change our lives. Paul would write it this way. It is the power of God unto salvation, first to the Jew and then the Gentile. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is God's initiative. So here's the fourth question. You might have figured me out already. Are you ready? Are you ready? It's funny how all of these same issues tend to point to the same thing. Are you ready? But fourth, fifthly, including, I'm going to camp out here for a few moments, in part part number five. Look in verse five with me. Behold, I, and again, the initiator being God, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. You see, there's a reconciliation that is coming. And I would argue it's come, but will be even further brought on this great day of the Lord. Number one, there's a prophecy that was fulfilled in John the Baptist. Now this Elijah that was being referred to in the Old Testament prophecy, that Elijah would come first before this day as Malachi is giving it, we can see clearly in the New Testament from the mouths of Jesus himself that this prophecy has been fulfilled. In Matthew's Gospel in Matthew 11, 13 and 14, Jesus is teaching the following, For all the prophets of the law have prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. See, Jesus saying about John the Baptist. That it was John the Baptist who proclaimed, Behold, I prepare the way for the Lord. Uh, and G- John the Baptist had a specific process and a specific place and time to do this very thing. Jesus would go on a little further in, in Matthew's gospel in chapter 17, verses 10 through 13, and explain this understanding of Elijah again. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say first Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Man, isn't it earth-shattering a little bit to understand that this Elijah that was prophesied about, that Malachi is sharing with us here, Jesus has made clear in no uncertain terms that it has already taken place. And if you want to dismiss those accounts, let me share with you a third account in Luke's gospel about how we know Elijah has already appeared before the great day and coming of the Lord. In Luke 9, 30-31, through this is the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus and John and the other two disciples were with Jesus And they see something miraculous happen. And there's two men that are there with Jesus as Jesus is transformed and His face is shining whiter than the whitey whites we could possibly have. And Luke says the following, And behold, two men were talking with Him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and smoke of His departure, which He was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So whether we want to take precedent and understand that Jesus declared John the Baptist to be this Elijah, we know Scripture records that Elijah and Moses showed up on that Mount of Transfiguration and were there, was there with Jesus before that occurred. So I would argue that prophecy that Malachi is leaving us has already occurred and that day has come. We need to be ready for it. But notice he goes on to share with us, not only that John the Baptist prophesied about it, but also that a great and awesome day of the Lord was coming. Joel would describe this day the following. Joel would say it this way, The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood and before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now I'm grateful I have not seen that yet. Amen. And if you understand the New Testament, this great rapture that will occur the Jesus' church, depending on where you stand on that issue, I will tell you that I believe the Scripture declares clearly that the church will be spared from that and we will be raptured with Him, called up into the air. Those who are dead first, those who are alive with Him, and together we will be with the Lord for all days. But there is a great awesome day, Joel described it, as the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. That's a pretty great and awesome day. But thirdly, there's a prophecy of reconciliation that's given. Notice in verse 6, And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Now, it doesn't seem like a really big deal that we restore some relationships. I mean, we just had Thanksgiving, and we want our family around, and we want everybody to sing kumbaya, and, and everybody to bring all the good stuff to the table, right? And everybody to be in good harmony with one another. But did you know it wasn't that way? Micah would share with us this way what was taking place in Israel's day in this minor prophet. Here's what Micah says. He says, Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt and the daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. That's how Micah was describing his time, what was happening, what God was prophesying would be taking place. Now, the fathers and sons and restoration and all this reconciliation goes even further. Ezekiel had a prophecy. In Ezekiel 5.10, you can find the following. Ezekiel had vividly portrayed a nation under the horrors of divine condemnation. When he prophesied a site of cannibalism during the siege of Jerusalem... In the words, fathers will eat their children, and children will eat their fathers. You can find that in Ezekiel 5.10. Malachi's portrayal, on the other hand, was one of a nation that had returned to the Lord and so rediscovered the way of peace. Malachi's Israel was full of men committing acts of treachery and injustice against one another, but Elijah's Israel would be full of righteousness and peace, and his day would be one of revelation, repentance, and reconciliation. Folks, isn't it amazing that Jesus gives us a peace that surpasses all understanding? That Elijah's day, the day of the new covenant of grace, the day that Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary for you and I, was placed in a borrowed tomb, and was rose on the third day. That day peace entered into the world. That day Jesus conquered sin once and for all. Here we are, the beneficiaries of this great reconciliation, that now once unknown to God, once hostile towards God, once a foreigner to God, can be reconciled to God because of His Son, Jesus Christ. Make no mistake about it, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Malachi was calling Judah to a lifestyle guided at all times, not by human wisdom, ambition, or societal, societal expectations, but by the thoughtful application of, of God's words in our daily life. I would argue the same thing. As I started off with this image in closing, are you ready for Christmas? Are you ready for Christmas? I'd argue the real question isn't, is are you ready for Christmas? The real question would be, are you ready for Christ? And there's only one way to get ready for Christ. As a matter of fact, I think I've got a picture of it. Have you placed your trust and faith in what Jesus did on the cross for you. Christmas will come and go. Next season we'll celebrate it again and we'll figure out what new decorations to buy and how to make the house feel more Christmassy. And we'll get through the season and then in January you all weep and gnashing teeth when the credit card statements come in, right? And the bank account balance is lower than you ever thought it would be, and all of that stuff, and it'll come and go and the cycle will continue. But one day, one day, every one of us will draw our last breath if the Lord tarries. And then we'll be standing there with the question of not are we ready for Christmas, but are we ready for Christ? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Do you know him as your Lord? Are you ready for Christ? If he returned today, would you rejoice at the sound of the trumpet that would blast? Or would you run in fear, thinking, oh no, I'm not ready. Today is the day of salvation, says the Lord.